your emergency pizza is ready. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Barker. Bill, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for asking. Well, Bill, uh, earnings season is starting to kick in. Um, I'm sort of stealing myself for for the onslaught of you know three, four, five, ten companies a day. How do you deal with that that tide of information? You know, I tend to focus on uh, what's in the headlines to a very limited extent, uh, and the specific companies that I'm most responsible for following uh, as an analyst here uh, at greater detail, it's uh, it's the best time, you know, that's the most real information. Uh, so, I don't mind it. I love it. It's the best time. Yes. Well, we've got some earnings today to talk about. Let's talk first about Domino's Pizza. You know, same store sales down a little bit, but, you know, Domino's is interesting to me because I think people think of it as, you know, it's selling pizza. And of course, it's selling pizza. But that's really part of the puzzle when you think about the business because it's a franchise business. It's a definitely a selling supplies business. What metrics are important with, with Domino's beyond just like they're selling more pizza? Well, boy, that is a big one. Uh, <laughs> that is a big one. <laughs> that is a very big one. Uh, beyond that, uh, sort of what the uh, Store count uh, is the the new store count year to year. What the cash on cash returns are uh, per store and per new store. Are they cannibalizing any of the existing uh, stores? I think that it's it's a relatively easy business to follow because it it's got a. a Simpler business plan than many others, you know. They, they, yeah. uh, despite the the franchise franchise fees um, and and all that, um, it's it's about how many pizzas they can sell more than anything else. They've expanded the menu beyond pizza. That helps at the margins, but the the core business hasn't changed too terribly much. No, it is still all about the pizza. One of the things that's interesting, though, is they are investing heavily in technology. Uh, they're uh, partnering with Microsoft, and they are passing some of that cost on to to the franchisees for for things like the app. How much are the sort of collaborations that they're doing, like this, uh, their Uber Eats thing? How much are you factoring that into looking at the business as a whole? Well, Uber Eats collaboration is interesting. Uh, the Domino's is still doing the deliveries, right. and so they're just visible on the Uber Eats app. Uh, they've already got a, a very uh, well-developed uh, online presence and have for years, and that's been one of the big contributors to their success. So they're just expanding into into Uber Eats in the in the sense that people see them there rather than their own ads. Um, there are people who will only order from Uber Eats right now. That's how they just choose to get uh, their food delivered. They probably don't realize it's Domino's that's delivering rather than Uber. Uh, so over time, and this is going to be a, a uh, so I think a four a market rollout initially, and then it's going to expand from there. Potentially, quite a bit of additional business for Domino's uh, with relatively little investment, uh, but uh, they'll it'll cut into the margins. 
but no, the investment is definitely happening on their on their app and driving their their customer loyalty and and improving things on that end as far as the technology goes. Yeah, they want people to order from them uh, rather than through Uber Eats. They don't want to split uh, you know the profits with Uber Eats if they don't have to. So. Making additions to the loyalty program, getting people to come back directly to them, just as a hotel would rather have you book directly at their site rather than through Expedia or Hotels.com or any of the other ways that you can get the same thing. Uh, but the you know Expedia or uh, all the intermediaries have their loyalty programs, and the, the hotels have their loyalty programs. It's the same same dynamic here. Where yeah. Domino's wants uh, to develop the app experience and the online experience as well as it can, so that it is not, so that it's getting all of all of the, you know, money that it can from the sale. It's it's the same endpoint work that they've got to do. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the loyalty program. They announced something earlier this week, very P- a PR driven story, but really made me think about their loyalty program. So they launched this thing where they call it like a free emergency pizza. Well, it's really just buy one get one later, but they kind of, you know, they call it an emergency pizza. It sounds kind of funny. It got a lot of got a lot of headlines. But the other part of that story too is they've also lowered the barrier to entry for the program. You can uh, you know, so they're really trying to get that loyalty program going. They're trying to make sure that people become part of that. You, you know, you just made a good point about Uber because of course Uber has, you know, they have their memberships and their loyalty programs. So I'm wondering when do you think that the loyalty program is going to grow with Domino's. Does, does this have to become part of the, the system? And overall, like, how much do you factor loyalty programs into thinking about the value of the business? Well, it shows up in the numbers. It shows up in the margins. Uh, so I think that uh, giving a you know buy one get one later pizza, getting a little bit of advertising uh, coverage for that is all to its benefit. And I think that everybody out there, grocery stores, you know, the, the little discounts you get by joining their loyalty programs, uh, certainly the airlines, there are people who uh, become quasi addicted to the miles, the points, the free stuff they can get at the margins. Uh, and so the more that you make people think, and part of the equation of making people think they're getting a, a value, a, a extra rewards from being in the loyalty program is to create real rewards. And uh, Domino's is, it's easy. You get a free pizza rather than you get access to the airport lounge or, or something like that. Uh, but uh, the emergency pizza, I guess, uh, offers some interesting uh, advertising possibilities uh, that I can think of. Yeah. I I do wonder if there's going to be loyalty program fatigue though. I mean, for some things, you know, like airlines, of course, I'm, you know, of course you're a member of those. It just makes sense. Uh, you know, I think everybody I know is a is a Starbucks Starbucks reward, you know, go in, you get your coffee eventually. Sometimes you get a free one. That's that's a good thing. But eventually do people get sick of managing all of these different rewards? And, you know, does that lead us more toward that idea of a super app where things sort of get consolidated? I always feel like we go through these cycles of consolidation and then unbundling and then consolidating again. Uh, a super app for all rewards. For all rewards? Hey, maybe for all food. Has somebody, <laughs> has somebody tried that yet? I mean, it's, it's, Not yet. Maybe it's, they should. To a certain degree, it's meant to be your phone uh, so that True. you don't have to remember 
all the things. You don't carry a card with you that you pull out uh, at checkout at, at every establishment that it can just live on your phone. Um, so that, I suppose, is the solution to the too many uh, loyalty reward programs and uh, numbers that you would have to remember and cards that you would have to carry. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. They should just put it in the in the iPhone wallet. One one more thing about Domino's. Uh, th- when people talk about the company, they they worry about the debt a little bit. I mean, you have five billion in in debt here. That's a lot of pizza. How how should investors be thinking about that debt? Well, I think that uh, it is a lot of debt. I think that's that's a, you know a fair thing to look at. It has worked out to the benefit of shareholders uh, because debt has been relatively cheap. Uh, so the debt you know, before the last 18 months was an extremely good way to fund growth uh, compared to issuing more equity. So I don't blame them for that. Then they've had, they have a target. Uh, I think it's, a, you know, four to six times uh, EBITDA or something like that uh, on the debt. So as long as they're maintaining and they are, uh, what their target range for the debt is, uh, I think that you can look at how that translates into additional profits for the company through the growth. But you know, the, if if debt becomes more and more expensive, and they don't have that much debt to pay off in the next three years, uh, so no one should worry about whether they would run into any serious financial trouble. And, and of course, the business is very predictable. The cash flow appears every day. People eat every day. So, it, it's a business that can maintain more debt uh, because of the predictability of the cash flows. Uh, but it's it's a lot of debt for a company this size. Yeah, yeah. But 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 the fact that it's not coming due anytime soon is, is at least a, a little bit of a comfort, I guess. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, from everybody's perspective, it will be cheaper to to borrow in the future than it is today. Homeowners and businesses and and everybody except uh, people who have uh, savings and bank accounts, they they don't mind uh, higher interest rates. But everybody else is pretty much uh, hoping in the future it's cheaper. And if it is, the Domino's debt will be less of a problem than if it gets to be more expensive. Oh God, I I hope <laughs> math. <laughs> that, that is, in fact, math. Uh, let's talk about uh, another company that reported today. Uh, you and I were on the Motley Fool Morning Show for our membership yesterday. We talked a little bit about Walgreens Boots Alliance because they announced a new CEO, Tim Wentworth, who has a strong healthcare background. And Walgreens is interesting. It is, it is, you know, really moving into that healthcare business. They're growing that mostly through acquisition, but debt is a factor here. It's costing them a lot of money. Looking at this company, when you see a company in general in the midst of this real change in focus, how do you assess the value of the long-term strategy, especially when it's a you know it's an older company like this? Well, I, I assess it in the numbers and what management says uh, about the strategy, and they may uh, haven't heard the conference call today. This was the first chance uh, from the new CEO to talk about whether there are any changes in the pace of the rollout or the use of funds to acquire rather than to do something uh, smaller scale within the stores. Uh, so, you know, so far it has not worked out terribly well. 
for shareholders. And I think that the transition to a CEO with more healthcare background, particularly in the uh, PBM space, is good because that's that's a big part of Walgreens money is is negotiating and and managing the PBM relationships and and surviving them uh, and and so somebody who knows where the bodies are buried uh, is going to be useful. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know the results came in below estimates. I mean that part of that is just uh, you know less COVID vaccines, less COVID testing. But even though the results came in below estimates, the the stock was up. I think some of that is sort of that like new CEO bounce, maybe a little a little bit of hope that they're going to have a new strategy, or just the idea that after six weeks of an interim CEO, at least you know there seems to be a plan forward. You think that might be what's causing a little bit of that? I, I'd have to guess, having not heard the conference call, that that something in there was was useful. I think that the stock is down so much this year that uh, simply not delivering bad news uh, or news as bad as it might have been, especially after the CEO abruptly left. Yeah. Uh, there might be questions about you know whether it's another shoe is going to drop so with a stock down 30 some percent this year it, today's report had an easy act to follow uh, now a lot of the time somebody new to the equation will come in and i don't think that there's been time to do this uh, just dump a whole lot of things the big bath uh, theory of of getting all the bad news out right away, and they're like, yeah, "That's none of that's my fault," you know. <laughs> so we'll just take a bunch of write downs, and we'll just, you know, uh, put all of the the losses um, in in a big bucket, and therefore they they don't count. So I, I don't think there was time to do that for this report. So the the miss on on top line, small as it was, and uh, I think. It, Market just is is taking a sigh of relief. I think that there isn't isn't any particularly bad news this time. Yeah, and they did talk a little bit uh, in the release about cutting costs, and I think I think the market wants to see that. You know, they've seen a lot of acquisitions, and now they want to see this cost cutting. They want to see sort of you know finding finding where they can you know make some savings, but. You know, yeah, you're right. It hasn't performed well over the past few years. A tough business for pharmacy overall because now you've got Walmart, you know, Amazon, Costco. Everybody's getting into the pharmacy game, and I'm wondering if Walgreens kind of has to make this payoff in order to survive because really these businesses are moving from being, you know, retail essentially to to now being retail and and increasingly healthcare and, and services. Maybe so. Uh, I mean. It is a problem that your traditional business, uh, which has worked very well and has allowed you to grow a lot, is being now uh, attacked by Walmart, Amazon, and Costco. You know that's that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot to deal with, uh, and so they've got to have some strategy for what that world is going to continue to look like. And the one that they have gone with. Uh, has not translated into profits uh, yet, but they're in a good space. Uh, they're the trusted healthcare name, uh, more so than those others, uh, and and there's an opportunity there. But you know, large drugstore chains uh, don't survive just because they get large. Yeah, 
Very true. I mean, we're, we're betting on the demographics of, of the aging of America with this one. All right, Bill, I'm going to wrap up with a silly question. What's your pizza order? My pizza order uh, usually uh, involves a lot of meat. Pizza. <laughs> what are you like a sausage and a, and a pepperoni guy? Something like that. Yeah, whatever, whatever's available. Yeah, and yours? Uh, I'm a pineapple person. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time today, Bill. Thank you. If you're a regular Motley Fool Money listener, you're probably well aware of how dividend stocks have the potential to really supercharge your portfolio's returns. Dividends have accounted for around 40% of the total return of the S&P 500 since 1930, and of course, have been an important tool for all-time greats like Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett. Our top-notch analysts at Motley Fool's Stock Advisors certainly agree, and put together a list of five quality dividend payers that are also recommendations in our Stock Advisors service. The report is free to you, just as a thank you for listening to our podcast. No purchase is necessary. Just go to fool.com slash dividends, and we'll email it directly to your inbox. That's fool.com slash dividends to claim your five dividend stock recommendations now. Will AI take over the investing world? I sat down with Professor Michael Robbins, author of the book, Quantitative Asset Management, to talk about how quantitative investing works and the potential and dangers in AI-driven investing. Let's start at the beginning. Quantitative asset management. People have probably heard it said a lot, but not necessarily understand exactly what it is and how it differs from other investing approaches. Yeah, it's uh, in the news a lot lately. And in fact, I think most investors now are quantitative in one way or another. But people, I think, misunderstand the purpose of it and think it's about coming up with a number, a scale, a metric uh, to judge a trade, when really it's about the process of thinking through the trade in a, uh, a disciplined, structured way, which I think works for everyone, even people who aren't great at math. <laughs> that would be me. Your book focuses on a lot of different types of modeling. So, how can a qualitative investor uh, like me get a better understanding of some of the models used in quantitative analysis and get a little more comfortable with some of those numbers? Well, there's lots of great information out there, and a lot of these models are accessible to people uh, without a lot of knowledge, although it's a little dangerous to use a powerful tool without a good understanding. But uh, some of these tutorials are really intuitive and interesting. So you can think of, for instance, a linear regression as a way to put a line on a chart full of dots so that the line is as close to as many dots as possible. And the way they do that is they measure the distance between the dots and the line and try to make the sum of those distances small. In fact, the, the real way they do is they take the square of those distances. A lot of the other more powerful machine learning methods are based on that sort of thing. Uh, they might use a different way to measure things or a different kind of line. Or maybe they use that line to divide two different types of dots instead of trying to find a line that's closest to fit them all. And, and that's a second type of problem called classification. So even in this short discussion, this simple analysis, we saw the two major types of quantitative analysis, uh, regressions and classification. So it can be intuitive. And a lot of videos show this graphically with all sorts of colors and moving uh, graphics. And I think it's pretty accessible for a lot of people. But then 
these much more complicated models, the ones that people are so excited about lately, like the large language models, they're harder to grasp. It's harder to get a true understanding of those things. It's a little like quantum physics. Uh, once you move out of the realm of what you're used to and the intuition about the world around you and things become abstract, it's hard to get a really good understanding uh, to be able to use those tools properly. Yeah, that's an interesting point you made about the difference between intuition, because so much of qualitative investing is thinking about what you feel about a company, what you what you know, listening to the earnings calls. You look at the numbers too, but you also are are going on uh, on a lot of intuition, whereas qu uh, quantitative is really different from that. So, thinking about modeling in general, what are the limitations of it, and when when maybe should we? put the modeling to the side and, and go a little more on the intuition? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And there, that's a, there's a lot packed into that. But all models are limited almost by definition. It's, it's just prohibitively difficult to build a, a model complex enough to take everything into account. So an important feature of quantitative investing is if you do your testing, you run a bunch of experiments, and you know what you've tested and what you haven't. You have that envelope, that uh, parameter that you're comfortable in. You know you've tested these things, and, and you're pretty reasonably sure that you understand what's going on. In quantitative investing, it's pretty clear what you don't know. Right? You, you may be right, you may be wrong, but if you haven't tested it before, you really don't know. And that's a great feature in a way of thinking. If you're qualitative, if you're intuitive, it, it could be very powerful, but you're also always a little unsure and sometimes more unsure than others. And a lot of times your mind plays tricks on you and your comfort level informs you of how much you believe in something. So if you're comfortable with a situation, you have the intuition that you know what's going on and that's not at all necessarily true. With quantitative investing, you know exactly the, the limits of your knowledge. And importantly, when you're trading, you should have an investment thesis. You should have a reason for investing. And that's the difference between investing and gambling. And when that thesis is violated, when you're out of your depth, you should exit your trade, even if you're making a lot of money. Because if you're making a lot of money and you don't know why, maybe you'll start losing a lot of money and not know why. The important thing is you should know why. and for me and people like me, quantitative investing gives you that comfort level that you actually know where that barrier is. You know what you've tested and what you haven't. And also, very importantly, and uh, this is something maybe some amateur traders don't think so much about, when things don't go well, people want to force you to stop what you're doing. They get uncomfortable, they get afraid, and it's important to be able to defend yourself. And and your trade. So if you have tests, you can say, hey, look, we've experimented with this. We've seen this in our experiments. You're uncomfortable. I get that. I understand what you're feeling, but your feeling is not as valid as our experiments. Right? Until you have a good reason for us to exit our trades, we have a good reason to stay in them. Whereas if you're um, intuitive, your reasons might be great, but they're a little harder to convince people of. And that may turn into someone forcing you to exit a trade before you have to. I want to talk a little bit about AI and how it might change the world of investing even more than it has. You mentioned earlier the large language models. What should we be looking for? How does it impact your world? 
Yeah, there's, it's already had a tremendous impact and uh, it will continue to do it, but I think the story is really changing. So machine learning and, and artificial intelligence are really just an evolution of statistics. If you're in the field, uh, you recognize that there are just maybe a more powerful way to do statistics. Some of them are a little more removed than others. Large language models are very different from simple linear regressions, but uh, it, it is an evolution, uh, and it will certainly affect everything. It's already, you know, pervasive. Even if you haven't noticed it yet, uh, you know, Netflix uses it to help you pick your movies. Uh, certainly, most ads you have uh, are generated by some form of AI. Uh, spam filters have been using AI for decades. So I think the fact that it's there and you might not even notice it is a testament to its power. Uh, but what I think is changing is that up until a little while ago, it was very hard to do those things uh, for an amateur. And you're pretty much limited to simple statistics. Recently, I think many amateurs can do it. You can download software, you know, Scikit-Learn or MATLAB has all sorts of packages. I mean, there's lots of different ways to use AI as an amateur, either for free or very close to free. And until a few months ago, I think they were pretty sophisticated relative to most of the other things that we've heard about in the news. You know, there might be some secret things going on in government laboratories and hedge funds and things, but in terms of uh, what was uh, known in the public media, the free software was pretty powerful. But that's changing. Right? So open AI is becoming not open. There's all sorts of private models uh, by Microsoft and all the other big companies. I'm sure the hedge funds have all their own secrets. Uh, at the university, I work with uh, research partners who use these enormous computers, just the size of large buildings, and quantum computers, and all this technology that's absolutely not accessible to individuals. So I think we, we're moving through a golden age of AI where amateurs can really do some very sophisticated stuff. And this is kind of going the way of high-frequency trading, where average people just can't compete. And there'll only be a few entities with even the possibility of competing with each other. Every once in a while, there'll be a tremendous breakthrough, which can happen outside of those organizations. An amateur could create a mathematical proof that, that just turns everything on its head. Uh, but that's really rare and hard to do. So I think you know, this idea of producing alpha, this idea of outperforming the market is going to get further and further away from the average person. And even these little niches, these little opportunities that a lot of people don't look at are going to be hoovered up by these machines that are so capable of doing so many things at once. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit uh, dystopic, but uh, it's kind of the way it seems to me right now. Is there still value for people to, to, to try to learn and try to understand investing with this idea that you've got this sort of AI threat kind of looming over us? Well, yeah, I think uh, there's still a lot of time before that happens from you know a, a personal standpoint. It's not going to happen overnight, but maybe in a generation 
you know, maybe the people in high school now won't have the opportunities we have to, to create investment returns. Uh, but right now, there's, there's a lot being left on the table. Uh, a lot of these machines are making some very obvious mistakes. Uh, I read an article about uh, that game Go, uh, you know, with the little rocks, little board game, and someone used AI not to create a strategy that beats the game, but to identify the weaknesses in the other AI's strategy. Right? So it wasn't trying to find a way to win, it was trying to find a way to expose the obvious errors the competitor was making. Uh, so it's kind of a cat and mouse game. And as we know from high frequency trading, it really hasn't worked out like a lot of people would have thought it was. These high frequency trading machines are not so brilliant because they're focusing on speed. So they do some very simple trades, but they do them very quickly. So if you can think of something a little smarter, Maybe that's another dimension where you can beat them, even though they're faster than you. Uh, the same may be true with AI, at least for the next five or 10 years. Uh, don't quote me on the time, I don't know. I'm not uh, a futurist, but they're making plenty of mistakes now. I mean, anybody who uses voice recognition on their phone knows how many mistakes their text messages have in them, right? So uh, there will be errors to capitalize on. and. In a lot of ways, that's easier than finding investment opportunities. I'd rather find mistakes in an algorithm than you know, try to find a good trade. There's less noise and uh, randomness in it, if you can identify a pattern. So uh, yeah, th there are things that we can do. It's not going to turn overnight. Well, fantastic. Thank you. This, this was great. Really appreciate your time. The book is Quantitative Asset Management. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.